2: Hi, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And in this week's New Statesman podcast...
3: First up, we talk about Boris Johnson and the burqa.
2: We ask, how radical is Jeremy Corbyn's agenda?
3: And I talk to Francis Crook of the Howard League about prisons policy and a new series of things that are not Brexit.
2: (music) Stephen, do we have to talk about Brexit? No. Instead, I think we should talk about the father, godfather, midwife.
3: Ugh, of uh, Brexit.
2: The Dr. Frankenstein of our leave vote. Nice, very nicely um, done. Doctor, not the monster. Well, arguably the monster. doctor. And
3: the monster yeah,
2: um, of Brexit, yeah. Boris Johnson. So this isn't his debut column since his return to the Telegraph, which is another issue that I have a number of feelings about. Right,
3: because that should have gone through presumably a cabinet committee to say that it was okay for him to do that mere micro picoseconds after he left the cabinet, right? Yeah. Let's take a moment to dwell on poor old Nick Timothy, the real loser from that I- ejection from the cabinet of Boris Johnson.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, oh, what a tragedy! That's enough. We're done there. It's also actually sorry. Can we dwell on that a li- little bit longer? Because the the thing that is interesting about that is one of the things I I will say uh, positively about my uh, my uh, alum alumn- alumni. What is the thing, one's an fellow alumnus? alumnus. Of?
3: Yeah. Fellow alumnus,
2: the Telegraph, the place. Oh, we see from
3: when yeah.
2: I came. You're an alumnus. I'm an alumnus, so I'm an
3: alumnal.
2: It's an, an hour mater isn't it? Yeah. I don't understand why I'm why I went down. All the right, stroke. there,
3: President Bartlett, get um, over it.
2: The, one of the fun things is is because it does pr- it doesn't have that thing where they have people who uh, are there to give an insight into how Cameron's Downing Street operates, who are still inexplicably doing that. Now Cameron's Downing Street is very much R.I.P. with the angels. Now Nick Timothy, I think. Uh, Probably won't be around that much longer because his value to the you Telegraph, mean in column
3: writing terms you don't think I'm that no I'm not planning whacked. to
2: have him killed <laughs> right okay <laughs> I'm like because his value to the Telegraph is in of itself a wasting asset but now he isn't even their biggest potential newsmaker on a quiet day Boris Johnson so is. I
3: haven't read the column because I sort of feel you don't need to read a Boris column you just sort of experience its effect and as far as I can see what he said was. Ultimately, comes down to the conclusion that he's against banning. Well, he describes it as the burqa, right? He's really talking about what the nikah, the full face covering veil, which is worn by a tiny, tiny minority of, of Muslim women. Like, it's not even worn by the majority of Muslim women in countries where some sort of head covering is mandated, right? Let alone in Britain. So it couldn't be a, a you know, like a fringe. It's kind of like weighing in against Orthodox Jewish women wearing wigs, except probably even a, a smaller issue, even than that.
2: Um, yeah, I'm just talking about actually. Also, in terms of the, uh, I'm in terms of the. I mean, obviously, the Jewish community in Britain is significantly smaller. But in terms of the fastest growing bit of the Jewish community in Britain, it proportionally is a, a smaller number. The number of uh, full veil wearing Muslim women is smaller than the number of uh, uh, Orthodox women.
3: So, while he, at the end he comes to the conclusion that he wouldn't personally ban it because he's like well liberal and that. He does manage to put in some jabs along the way about them looking like bank robbers and letter boxes, pillar boxes, which is... I mean, where does he go in that he's, there are black pillar boxes?
1: Um,
2: well, so sometimes is life people is like do in where you, you They don't have to be black. I don't uh, think I've
3: ever seen an illustration of anybody in a niqab that was anything other than black. I sort of thought you brought the whole thing together. But anyway, there can be people can, can write in and, um, and maybe, let me know.
2: So, I mean... So I I did make the mistake of uh, of reading the whole column. Your summation of it, however, proves than your theory that you in fact don't don't need to. When you started going, I, I haven't going to read this. I was just like, well, this is where my decision to do so is going to pay off. <laughs> and as you were going through, it, I was just like, no, no, oh no! It turns out I I gained very little from it. I think what I found uh, strange about it is is one exactly as you say, right? Yeah, he's he's uh, a source close to Boris Johnson has said. Yeah, uh, he wants to keep talking about difficult issues. No, Liz Trust saying, sorry, we've got the, to build on the Green Belt. We've got belt, to build lads. on the Green oh. Belt and your house may lose some equity is a difficult issue, right? Um She's also right. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas someone going, Oh, I don't like it. It seems quite patriarchal and a bit nasty, but you know, we shouldn't ban it, is not a difficult issue because that is quite literally where the you know, it, it it is a milk toast observation that most people agree with. Therefore, you cannot plausibly say that you are talking about a difficult issue in saying so. What people are objecting to is, um, I mean, are the really crass descriptions of people as pillar boxes or bank robbers or, I mean, it literally is juvenile. I mean, it is the kind of thing that we used to say at school about someone's mom. Like, you know, like, oh, you know, you're like, yeah, we used to think it was like the height of wit. To just point at like when we'd like, you know, that way you're just going go and loiter in home base for reasons passing understanding. To like point well, check at
3: your a, London privilege, our home base was like out of town. We didn't even a, get to that point at
2: a 10 and go, hey, Shafi, it's your mom. Like, yeah, I mean, it's the thing. It's just like, it's just like, yeah, Boris Johnson. You probably shouldn't is, be
3: doing that when you've been foreign 15-year-old. secretary.
2: Yeah. I, and I think it, it feels unlikely to me that he has a number of friends whose parents are. Uh, Nikal wearing, But yes, you you can wear it in any colour. So you you could be a pillar box if you
3: okay. Well, I'll keep that in mind. Um, it's part of a continuum of stuff that I find particularly annoying as the perspective of somebody who writes quite a lot online a lot about feminist issues, because there is a whole discourse around the far right, which is only concerned with women's issues insofar as they are used as a stick to beat Islam, all kind of brown people more generally. So the Tommy Robinson uh case is another case in point, right? So he won what he was sent to prison for was filming outside an Asian grooming gang trial. Now, there have been, as well, white grooming gangs. There there are really complicated ways in which you say that might intersect with some particular communities with control of the nighttime economy. Like There's very interesting things to say about that. But somebody who has shown no interest in in violence against women to suddenly kind of weigh in to be like Jermaine Flippin' Greer because it's another community that wants to demonise, see also those people who suddenly get really interested in FGM only either as a way to tell feminists they shouldn't be talking about whatever it is they're currently talking about, or as a way to kind of just want to talk about the barbarism of the other. And you kind of go, well, it's a really complicated cultural practice that is not going to be solved by people outside the communities using it as a kind of stick to beat them with. There are amazing FGM activists from within the communities, effectively. And Nimco Ali is one of my friends, a survivor of FGM, it has done enormous work on Daughters of Eve. But they don't, what they don't need is someone like Boris Johnson blundering in to make a load of points. That are sort of Steve Bannon like. Like I really do feel the detect the terrible hand of the Steve Bannon meeting and all this. I don't know. So I actually Oh no, I've turned into Jeremy Corbyn, the hand of Steve Bannon. I actually
2: I I detect neither the hand of Steve Bannon nor indeed of Israel. Too soon. Um <laughs> too soon. Um but I I, I actually think um Okay, yeah, I, Bannon, I doubt, Bannonism.
3: I, I think that's the point is I, that I'm, I'm doubt, making. Is that idea when people start talking about Judeo-Christian values in that way that makes you go like, like if you really cared about Judeo-Christian values, Boris Johnson, you would have stayed faithful to your wife.
2: Well, I, I, yeah. I just think that the the Steve Bannon thing. One, I I do essentially take the view that Steve Bannon is a chancellor who got lucky in terms of his political association. Yeah, he he didn't. But Steve bang.
3: only Steve Bannon only needs to get lucky once, and he kind of did. It's true.
2: But I I also I I don't think that um. Defending uh, the right to wear the burqa is where Steve Bannon would 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 put yeah where Steve Bannon would put Boris Johnson in a in a free will. I I what I think is interesting about it is in many ways it is the classic Boris Johnson Telegraph column when he was Mayor of London right and then he's basically going here's something which is liberal seeming but essentially perfectly aligns a with public opinion and b at the time he was mayor of London, when his whole pitch to Conservatives was, oh, the normals like me, he could effectively go, look look how I'm reaching out to to, to people who don't like the Conservative Party.
3: It's also quite a lot of a kind of classic journalist thing where it's like, here's a screamy headline that's incredibly read-me, that then you discover, you know when they do that, like, why, you know, why all cats should be shot is the yeah. headline, and then you read it and you go, It's actually a serious piece about the effect of them on wild birds. Yeah, and you it go, is, oh, okay, you do make some legitimate points there.
2: It is an August column, although, of course, Claire Foges has raised the bar for everyone with the it's August. One. <laughs> not, not much is going on. I mean, that, that means I Maybe can we never agree huh? time for an honest debate about tax and spend again. I mean, you know, the bar <laughs> has well and truly been raised for the quiet news week. She wrote um, another
3: column since,
2: uh, yes, she wrote a, a brilliantly right so after what what so after a, a column in which he basically went so duterte may have murdered thousands of his own people including children in his drug war but can't break an omelet without making a few eggs um right. her next one was about this thing i'm really fascinated by which is this obsession on the right with like uh right on uh cocaine users um,
3: oh, which Cressida Dick, the Met commander, also came into. And Sadiq
2: has said. But it's one of those things... But it's not
3: an unreasonable point.
2: But it, it literally... It, the, the proportion of the population which is right on and does cocaine is literally 1% of the... Just because everyone who works in politics or the media at some point has been at a party in which someone's just gone, yeah, man, yeah, I, I, I would vote for Corbyn, but voting is just too polluting of my body. Anyway got any coke just because we've all been at a you party you meet a lot with... of southern americans at these, <laughs>
3: these parties just, just oh look. now let me sing "Oh man river <laughs>
2: yeah i mean like look the only accent i know how to do <laughs> know,
3: is, a, is a gentleman from a kind the of deep like, south
2: okay like
3: <laughs> kind of like yeah 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 don't you do that sort of yeah yeah i do that's how i, I came, mean that was what i was
2: i was trying to oh, that do was that, what you were that aiming for. Yeah, right, I, was, okay. I was i was i was aiming for a raw and I ended up as Tara, mistress yeah. of cans. <laughs> any, but anyway, my but point is. I know is what you just, mean. There
3: aren't, there aren't that many people who go, like, yeah, actually, I like eat totally detox, yeah. And actually, I've been on a silent retreat, but I've really. just got a couple of thoughts I want to share with you. Yeah.
2: yeah I mean, yeah, I know that, that, person. that person is annoying, but they are not representative <laughs> of, of the average person who does cocaine in this or indeed any other country. But it was also particularly weird the kind of handbrake turn from, you know, Duterte, what? What's a couple of murder? I mean, you know There, there is, is a
3: common thread there, which is that she's against drugs, and so is Duterte.
2: Yeah, I guess. But so yeah, so Claire Foges is, is playing a blinder. But the odd thing is, is that if um, if if he had not ha- if, if you take away the stupid pillar boxes line and the bank robber bit, then you would essentially have a kind of Boris one 0, where he would have done, he would have been given plaudits for being boldly liberal. But and were, raising
3: the difficult issue of the concept of Islam as a whole and yeah. multiculturalism and integration,
2: and, and people would have gone, "Oh, Johnson, yeah he's a, you know, he's a player. He could be leader after Cameron." And I think it it reflects a couple of of shifts. One, and a large chunk of Boris's electoral appeal was essentially, "Come on, it will be an adventure. What's the worst that could happen?" And now it turns out, and the answer to what's the worst that could happen is like, "Well, spam. how how long have <laughs> you got?"
3: Stockpiled spam, yeah.
2: Um, and also, he isn't as good at it anymore. I, I, I think yeah, that's look. the
3: thing that gets me is he's kind of a, like a late period boxer who's taken too many blows, and they're actually just a bit kind of woozy, and you know the reflexes have slowed, and it's actually just a bit tragic. I think that's. I mean, I don't find it particularly tragic because I don't really want him to, you know, unlike in a kind of great redemptive boxing film, I don't want him to have one last fight when he might. That like would be year. a
2: hell of a role for Mickey Rourke,
3: though. <laughs> for I think, imagine the prosthetics. Yeah, yeah and he finally, you know he finally punches out his you know the guy who years ago stole his car or something but um yes I take your point about that I do I find I do find the issue really really bad because it is we already know that women who wear the niqab are subjected to a huge amount of harassment in the street they get spat at they get shouted at and fundamentally although I'm opposed to wearing I wouldn't wear it myself I wouldn't encourage anyone else to wear it I find it quite unpleasant when I see couples when one half of them is wearing completely western dress the male half and the other half is wearing a kind of not even an original Islamic version or something, something that was a, a kind of a later um, tradition that came out of it. I find that deeply uncomfortable that why is it always women who you know the burden of kind of modesty is is on um, but nonetheless it 's just such a marginal issue that to pick to pick it at all is deeply revealing.
2: well yeah, I think yeah you're, I essentially agree with all of that, and I think the crucial part is, as you say, that women wearing the full face veil are overwhelmingly uh the the people who are most likely to be the victims of islamophobic attacks uh including people who will use descriptions like you look like a letterbox yada 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 you um
3: but once again it's making women's choices and making it impossible for women to navigate a course in which they there is any course in which they don't face a huge amount of pressure on their on, on what they're wearing what they're looks, whether or not it's within the community or outside the community yeah and i'm really uncomfortable and too. Also,
2: the decision the decision to write about it in the in in a, in a national newspaper does give it the impression of an issue which is deserving of national discussion i as yeah one which in which the full va- fa the full face veil i would just like to say listeners you really do not appreciate how many times uh, caroline crampton has had to cut place out fl- some fl- variant <laughs> of me going the full veil face um but um yeah the the thing about the thing I am not going to. The thing about the cap is that uh, is that most yeah you know, most people do not wear it. it is therefore not an issue deserving of however many thou- however many hundred words uh, in the Telegraph and I think a large no not can a he, large chunk of Islamophobia re- in the UK is driven by this idea that there are loads and loads and loads of Muslims coming to uh, eat your granny.
3: I will take it from him if he spends the rest of the summer writing about other things about women's clothing that I don't like. Right, so I want next week I want to be why the. Leading hell does women's clothing not have any bloody pockets in it that is annoying no one likes to have to carry around oh can you just put some stuff in your bag for me no i will not not that my dear husband does that because he knows two high heels can't wear them never wear them find them incredibly hard to wear just think that maybe that someone should be sent away and learn how to make them comfortable if we're going to be expected to wear them i can't really like to be on that uh what else am i annoyed about um why don't women's shirts ever button up properly over the boobs that's annoying. They're just not made with enough darts, I think. They just use slogan I feel also T-shirts. I that probably
2: will be an issue Then Boris has a lot of experience of the, <laughs> of the, of the difficulties of navigating. You know.
3: right, why are, uh, yeah. Right, why are women's jeans so tight at the top? That's really annoying. Someone did a great thing about the fact that if you ever read a script in which someone puts something in their jeans and pocket as a woman and sits down comfortably, you can tell that script was written by a man. So that was, I think, some really important. But so, if yeah, if anyone else has any tips for other bits of women's fashion advice, that perhaps what is a what is a good length for that difficult transitional period? When should you start wearing tights in the autumn? Is October too late? These are the kind of things I think that Boris Johnson could usefully address.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news: ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership.
3: And now I'm joined by John Ellidge, and also Francis Crook, head of the Howard League for Penal Reform. I have to say the bit about penal reform right? because this is very important that you're not just someone who's interested in prisons, but you're no. interested in justice reform more
4: generally. That's right. Uh, the Howard League uh, was actually founded to abolish capital punishment. Uh, so we look at if once people have committed a crime and got into trouble in some way in conflict with the law, what should we do with them? How should we behave? What are the best questions to ask? even So it's very fundamental. And um, capital punishment of course, making a comeback these days. No, it's not. <laughs> We're putting a stop to that. No, I mean I think that was I think the government made a mistake. although what so I should say
3: for people who haven't been following this is Sayyid Javid, the Home Secretary, gave an assurance it was that we would cooperate with an American investigation into two alleged Islamist bombers even though we didn't get assurances from America that they wouldn't face the death penalty, which is something we've been normally very strong about.
4: It looks weirdly as, it possibly, I mean, there are questions to ask on this. I'm not making casting aspersions here, but there's a question to ask about whether it was related and linked to the Trump visit, whether the Americans really want executions as kind of show trials, and whether we are not only just colluding with it, but positively promoting that. There are questions to be asked about why this happened in the first place and, and how how much blood on his hands um, the Home Secretary has.
3: Well, let's go back a bit because one of the reasons I wanted to do this um, podcast series over the summer is to say that Brexit is sucking a lot of the political oxygen out of the the room and and Labour has got its own difficulties that are making it difficult for it to make headway on kind of classic opposition issues. But I think that Prison policy is one of the, is, is, well, it's never, there's no government that really invests in, in, of the time it should into it, right? That must be your experience, I'm sure. But it has been really, really poorly neglected in the last couple of years. Um, so can you just give us an overview of where, what the main problems in that in that policy area are at the moment?
4: I feel slightly ambivalently about this. I agree with you to a certain extent. But on the other hand, when government does concentrate on on penal policy, like in the Blair years, it's a disaster. (laughs) Um, So... You're know, actually, You're sort it, of talking about the kind of ASBO sort uh, exactly, of, and tough on crime, tough exactly, on the cause of crime. and the prison population exploded and lots of people who were very vulnerable, mental health problems, women, children. The, the number of children in prison absolutely exploded. Um, and they got caught, not just in prison, but they, a lot of them got criminalised by being arrested. Uh, they got in uh, formal sanctions by the police. They were then prosecuted. So all the way through the system, sucking young people into the system was an absolute disaster. And I... I stand perhaps sort of outside the norm on this. Um, I think the creation of the Youth Justice Board and the sort of youth justice industry was a disaster for children, uh, treated very badly. So perhaps a a little period of quiet um, by the the government is not necessarily a bad thing on the one hand. On the other hand, um, we do have serious problems today in prisons. Uh, we have serious problems in in policing and in in the justice system generally in the courts. Um, I sat in, I was in a magistrate's court uh, yesterday, and there were ser- there are serious problems, um, and there is we do need legislative change to tidy up some of that. And there simply is no possibility of any legislative change coming at all.
5: Can I ask a fairly basic question, which is, what are prisons like? Like, I have no kind of, I, I mean, I have some mental images, but I have no idea which of them are real and which of them I've picked up from Orange is the New Black or, or like, Little or what? Well, yeah, porridge. I have no mental image of what a prison actually looks like and what life in it is like. Can you kind of paint us a bit of a picture?
4: Well, it's not like porridge. Porridge is kind of benign and a bit like the Dad's Army version, because that doesn't reflect reality. Neither of them reflect any reality. I, I think that, let me give, you, give it to you this way. My name is Francis, which means freedom. And my surname is Crook, which means criminal. So I kind of feel quite strongly about this. It was nominative determinism. I was born to it. And I think it's the restriction of freedom, the inability to make any decisions about your life. You don't decide what you eat, really. You don't decide what time you get up. You have absolute no control or autonomy or agency over your life or decisions at all. It is totally infantilizing. And that is one of the reasons, I think, why, why the majority of people who come out of prison go on to commit another crime, because they are so infantilized. They are so unable to take responsibility for themselves anymore um, that it, it becomes impossible to function in a normal society. And I think that, that that's one of the reasons why what the Howard League says is we, we are not abolitionist in the sense I want to get rid of prisons completely, but I want to get rid of them as they are. I want to make them places of responsibility and purpose. I want to have very few people in custody, but the people who are there take uh, take responsibility. So it's like normal life, but in a different place. I mean, you you will have seen them the um, Channel 4 programme uh, recently so, um, about about prisons in Durham and things it was just ghastly I thought it was really interesting bars. you
3: and I went um, in 2016 when I profiled you up to a couple of prisons up near Yarm in uh, Teesside yes. and we went to a, I'm going to say a category B yeah, uh, and and then also a category D and an open prison, and it was kind of like a sort of uh, the open prison. I felt was more like a kind of barracks, and I was, I was kind of surprised by the fact that it had you know, and then it had kind of those sort of municipal, like kind of like student accommodation was the best bit of the block, and then some older bits too. But that had a you know metalworking workshop at the, out the back. It had uh, beehives that they had, and it had and it was much more you know, and there were fences to some extent. But given that so much of the population comes in there every day, they weren't you know, it wasn't kind of proper watchtowers business. Whereas the Category B prison, I found a lot, I found incredibly claustrophobic from the start. It's old Victorian brick, uh, you know, big high walls around it. A lot Obviously, to get between each different section, there are locks, so you can lock people in one corridor, right? It's the idea is you probably need to isolate people in one bit. And then it had dormitories that were much more similar to what you think of that, that Victorian prison. I think you were saying Wandsworth is like this, you know, with those kind of galleries. Yeah. Um, and the netting and I think that that I mean that one of the things we could talk about is the fact that the prison estate is very badly designed for the things that you might want it to do those London prisons are not only incredibly overcrowded but they're old Victorian narrow corridors. so if someone barricades them in their cell and you know cells in the cell and tries to set themselves on fire it's quite hard to actually deal with that I think it probably is much easier for violence to break out because you, you because of the way everyone's kind of on top of each other. In,
4: in some ways. I mean, actually, the thing about the Victorians is they could build, they could design. And In the Victorian prisons, there's a lot of natural light mm. if the windows aren't replaced with um, new windows. Um, there's There are vistas, so you get a sight line. Um, staff can get a sight line. In the new prisons, everything is is on is a much smaller scale and much more claustrophobic, actually. The problem with Wandsworth, Pentonville um, and Brixton is that they are grossly overcrowded. If they, were, if they held the number of people, one to a cell, um, and they were properly resourced and staffed, actually I think they could function as local prisons for temporary accommodation for people coming from the courts so that people could get there and visit. They could function reasonably well.
3: Which is one of the interesting things about the fact they're in central London is, is good, yes, right? Because yes. they're actually on a public transport yes. network. And one of the issues with closing down Holloway, the women's prison, and moving yeah. people out to what Caunton, uh, it's Bronzefield that most people have ended up in. It's the, sort of in the uh, middle of yes, nowhere, basically. Yeah, yeah. And, and at that point, you, it's very hard for people's families to come and visit them because it's a couple of bus rides away from anywhere. I mean, the same problem we have with the Isles Wood and the detention system. Yes. It's, it's hard to scrutinise as a journalist and it's hard for families to get any, an access to it even. Yes,
4: yeah, so inner city prisons are serve a good function if they're not overcrowded. I mean, it's easy to blame the building but don't forget, Oxford you know, and Cambridge are quite old buildings and they function quite well. So don't blame the buildings. It's the fact that they're not maintained properly, they're not staffed properly, um, and they're grossly overcrowded.
5: So what does the overcrowding look like? I mean, you said they should be one to a cell. How many is it at the moment?
4: Well, if you imagine your toilet at home, um, it's the, the cells are not much bigger than that. And there are two people in them and they have a toilet. So if you want to urinate or defecate, you do it in front of your cellmate. And because people were hanging themselves from the bars, they replaced the windows with what they call safer windows. So there's very little ventilation and very little light. So the smell is quite overpowering. They're usually filthy because there aren't any cleaning materials. Uh, you now uh, uh, get about two pounds a day. For the budget for food, so you will get what's called a breakfast pack. So it's about 190 milliliters of milk, a couple of slices of white bread, and a pat of a, a small pat of butter. For and you get given that at four o'clock, five o'clock in the afternoon, that's right? In the for afternoon, the next day. and that's for breakfast. Uh, then,
3: then so it, people are eating those, aren't they? Because yes, they hung, they're, they're so hungry by that time. Yes, of the in
4: their cell, sitting on the toilet, because there isn't enough room for a table and chair. So you sit on the toilet or you sit on a bunk and you eat your little breakfast at four or five o'clock. The then you get lunch at 11 or 11.30, which is a baguette and a packet of crisps. And then you get your supper, which is probably a cooked meal, but is very stodgy uh, at five o'clock. And then it all starts again. So you're getting very stodgy, poor diet, very little exercise, hardly ever out. And you're living in a toilet.
5: How much time are they allowed out of the cell?
4: Well, places uh, like the 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 Victorian prisons the overcrowded prisons you may get out for an hour or two hours a day that's about it often people will hardly ever get outside at all or into an exercise yard you w- you may not see a tree or the whole time you're in prison i've met people that haven't been outside for months
3: i think that's the stuff that i found really shocking because the the rhetoric so much and i you know i think Maybe you've got views on this, Francis. There's still a fear of the kind of the son and the male doing kind of lags, having playstations, you know, living it up on our life. But I don't think anybody who's ever been into a prison can honestly say that this is a lifestyle that that you would, cho- you know, you would choose now. I can see why there are people who are institutionalised and actually find it hard to survive after having been in that system for years and do feel we're almost a weird sense of relief going back to it. But I don't think any of us here would choose to live like that.
5: I mean, this is, this is my other big question. Is it, is, it, is it all Chris Grayling's fault? Because a lot of things are.
4: <laughs> Climate <laughs> yes, change, I a lot of No, it's not as simple as that. I mean, I think there is, a, a, the tabloids and the media have a lot to blame for it, as, uh, as Helen said, that, that they're, they're, it's very easy to put lags having an easy life on the front page, it sells newspapers. Um, There's been some interesting work looking at why certain countries have very high use of prison and why other countries don't. And there are certain factors across um, why we have a high use of prison and why we're very punitive, which we are across Europe. We're the the highest use of prison, very punitive. And that is we have a, um, a very combative political system, whereas countries like France and Germany, um, where there's more sort of consensus, different kinds of politics, they um, even though they've had very right-wing governments, uh, they don't have such a high use of prison. Um, it's the the media, the, the tabloids. Uh, countries like Scandinavia, they tend to have um, newspapers by subscription so they don't have to scream at you to sell. Um, it's extreme in, uh, economic inequality. So there are certain factors which you can see why certain countries like America, Britain have high use of custody and are extremely punitive, whereas countries like France, Germany, and of course, everyone talks about Scandinavia, but Italy as well, they don't have such a high use of custody.
5: And what about austerity? Where does that fit into the picture?
4: Well, we lock up poor people. Um, it's that simple.
5: We've created more of them, effectively. And we've
4: created more of them, and they're more on the streets, and they're they're more around. Yes. There's definitely a point about in, in
3: care leavers as well, right? We have a very dysfunctional care system, and care leavers are disproportionately likely to end up in in prison, so they move essentially one type of institution to another.
4: Yes, and the, and uh, actually, the Howard League is doing a lot of work looking at the criminalisation of children residential care, where at the moment we have two thousand residential children's homes almost all of them run by private sector companies many of them sort of hedge funds offshore hedge funds because there's a lot of money in running children's services it's a it's a market and why is
3: there more money in children's service is that because the budgets are higher per yes. person
4: yes well, more money in children than weak. old people uh, it's a more lucrative market so they're moving from old people to children so what you get is 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 low paid staff um, in small children's homes, often in poor areas like Margate, where there's been a lot of media coverage at the moment, and uh, the children are not cared for properly. They often, come, they obviously come from very dysfunctional, damaged backgrounds. They need very skilled support and they don't get it, and they get criminalised because of that. So the Howard League is actually working at the moment with the police who have been really good about this. I have to say the police are really leading the way on not arresting children um, in children's homes who... Low-level stuff, you know, they're uh, they're breaking a cup or they're going missing or something, um, and the police are sort of we're working with the police on this to stop the criminalisation, so they don't end up going through the system and then ending up in custody.
3: You mentioned that um, privatisation. I don't think you can tell the story of what's wrong with prisons without bringing that in, right? Because. When we went around those prisons, the state of disrepair they were in was partly due to the fact that they had, I think actually under Chris Grayling, they had signed contracts about maintenance with incredibly tough break clauses, but they weren't working out. And we've had the news about the probation service, which, as as I understand, was essentially split in two with the quote unquote easy cases given to the private sector. But what that meant was the destruction of a lot of institutional knowledge. And then those private providers have come back and gone, actually, this isn't making us any money. We don't we don't really we're not enjoying this. Can we have our ball back, please? Is is that a fair
4: assessment? Yes, it is. It is quite fair. I mean, what's happened in probation? You're right. Chris Grayling split the probation service into, into two so that the National Probation Service, which had a lot of resources sucked out of it, drained out of it deliberately and given to the private companies. The National Probation Service deals with high risk. Serious people, um, ser- people who committed serious offences, um, and the private companies. Again, he created 21 areas for these private companies, completely arbitrarily. They're not co-terminous local authorities or police areas or anything. It was just to suit the private companies, and um, they're actually making quite a lot of money. They've had lots of extra buns of, of, of millions, hundreds of millions of pounds to keep them happy, um, but they're still not ha- they're still not functioning well. So if somebody who's committed an offence and given a community sentence or just come out of prison is told, give us a ring every six weeks, just phone us up. And they don't even know if that's the right person phoning them up. I mean, that's the level of supervision and support that people get. So obviously what happens is they get breached, they go back into custody or they commit more offences. They may or may not get caught with that. It's, a, it's an absolute shambles. There is a, a consultation out at the moment. The government is looking at changing that. So f- what the plan is for Wales to have a unified probation service. Go back to what we had before, which is great. I think that's sensible. One service, they talk to each other. Um, But in England, uh, that will still be a private um, split, private-public split, and that's just bonkers. I just don't understand why that is. I think they just must have been lent on by the private sector. I, I don't know why that is because it's it's not working. One thing that struck me from when we were going around actually, talking about you, all kind of I get getting a
3: sense, John, of, of what prisons are like. Um, I remember you saying to me, I just completely blew my mind that prisons aren't allowed email addresses and their uh, internet use is often restricted. So they're supposed to be, particularly if you're on a, you know, you're an open prison, you're supposed to be thinking about reintegrating into society, getting a job. Well, how do you get on the job search websites? You know, how do you sign up? How do you send your CV to people? We're just, there are these arbitrary restrictions that are punitive over and above having your liberty restricted that are stopping people from from getting back on you know back into the the job market yes finally yes your then let me get the Howard league slogan right which is safer communities fewer people in prisons less crime less crime which is also very important we we want less crime um what's what okay if you if you have your magic wand and you're allowed to do three things today what are the three things that would improve uh, our prison policy
4: I, I would carry on reducing the use of prison, and, and that actually is happening slowly, and, and that's to be welcome. We, there are 3,000 or so fewer prisons in, in custody, but you. Then they were than last, were last Josh, year. Yeah. That's good. We need to have a drastic reduction in use of prison so that prison serves up, is reduced for people who are really serious, uh, committed serious offences, and, and then make prison a different place. So first of all, reduce the use of prison, halve it easily. Um, and don't you always say Margaret Thatcher, it was under her when supposedly sort of,
3: yeah. pun- I mean, I know the population's gone up since then, but actually we do prison a lot of people
4: comparative to then or comparative yeah. to other European nations now. She uh, Under Margaret Thatcher, we had 40,000 people in prison. We've got more than 80,000 now. So we could go back to Thatcher or even more. Then secondly, if you're going to have prisons, you have to make them places of purposeful activity. They have to they have to be humane, but they they shouldn't infantilize. And and one of one of the, the Howard League's ideas is to make is to offer people the opportunity to work. It's the thing that people do to a real job with real pay, so they can help to keep their families. If they want little luxuries, they can pay for them. So that that make prisons work completely differently. Um, And also, then thirdly, it is the community. I would like to see more emphasis on on healing the damage done by crime. Crime is corrosive. It not only hurts individuals, it is corrosive to society. So we should look at uh, systems which are more about paying back, not about punishment, but of allowing people to make amends for the wrong they've done in the community in a very constructive way. That helps victims, it's cheaper, so it's better for the taxpayer. And in the end, what it does is turns lives around better so they don't commit another crime. And I think that's generally what we all want.
3: Thank you very much. That was Francis Cook of the Howard League. And now for a section we like to
2: call You Ask Us.
3: Oh, I like that. And you, you're like an actor giving different line reading. You ask us? What have people asked us?
2: I actually don't have any questions, but I believe you.
3: Yeah, someone tweeted at me saying one of the kind of classic responses about the anti Semitism row has been about the, you know, it's because people are talking about it to distract from, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's award winning socialist agenda. What is Jeremy Corbyn's award and indeed vote winning socialist agenda? And I thought it was a kind of interesting question because that is the kind of premise of a lot of the people who are refusing to accept that it's a real rare, which is that it's it's a distraction basically from what he's trying to do. So it's probably a good point to talk about what he is trying to do. The one thing I know that has happened that got buried is John McDonnell saying that a pilot of universal basic income will be in the next Labour manifesto. Thing is, I think I'm I'm in favour of that, not because I'm in favour of universal basic income, which I'm not in favour of. But because it's an interesting experiment to try and work, it expands the range of economic thinking. Scotland's already had one in Glasgow, I believe. I went to Finland last year and interviewed that, oh my God, everyone in Finnish politics is just the politest person you've ever met. And their English is so, I mean, as ever, it's incredibly embarrassing going to meet politicians from another country because their English is so good. And they're all called Pekka. Which is the Finnish version of Peter, which I like. Um, and talk to me about their universal basic exper- income experiment. The problem with universal basic income, which keeps coming up from both the radical left and the kind of libertarian US right, is that it's not very good at being proportional. Why would you give a twenty-year-old single man the same benefits level as you would give a seventy-year-old, you know, or a single mother of three children? uh, what actually you're talking about really in those situations is you want to increase the minimum amount of benefits. You basically, really, the point of universal basic income is to make sure that everybody has enough benefits, whatever you want to call it, that they don't have to take a job that is undignified or horrible or, you know, in places that have got chronic long-term unemployment, there is still a way for people to live if they think we're never going to get a job again. So there's a lot of resistance to it within labour on the basis that work gives you status and practically something to do. Um, and that is important in itself. And UBI is, is going to just transfer a lot of money to people who don't need it at the expense probably of people who do and actually what you should... Anyway, so that's my thoughts about UBI. But I think it's interesting. I think we should be thinking about what automation is going to do to jobs. We should be thinking about the way I think the benefits have been massive. I was looking at the Women's Budget Group stuff this week and particularly through universal credit, single parents are now really a thing again in, in in policy terms, in terms of people really struggling to make ends meet. So I would have been in favour of having that discussion. That is true. What else has Jesse Corbyn been up to that we haven't heard about?
2: Well, it's odd. So obviously we both got this same, this same message via Twitter. And I, I read it, I guess, in a slightly more barbed tone of voice. Oh, it was is,
3: definitely barbed. I was
2: barbed, I think. Uh, yeah, no, well, I mean, it's, uh, as basically like, I'm... Continually told them this is an agenda which is sufficiently radical and people have to make up, But. Well, there was is a letter
3: it? in The Guardian that was all about the kind of neo Blairite running dogs to distract us from, you know, that meme they have about Jeremy Corbyn, that like he's the first politician who can't be bought, um, that kind of thing. And it's like, well, yeah, yeah I guess he's very principled, but also the, the manif- 2017 manifesto was not.
2: Yeah. I mean, I mean so I'm, I'm slightly more dubious about a UBI pilot because Scotland will have done its one by then although there are uh, more acute public health challenges in parts of Scotland than there are in parts of the UK, I'm not... Con- I basically think, you know, ultimately, it's probably a better idea to go, we will pay due regard to the result of this pilot. Ditto there have been in ones in Finland. And they kind of all get back to the same point. Now, I'm, my view on, on UBI is, is if what you actually mean is maybe here's a way that we can end conditionality, which we know doesn't work, have it, a you truly
3: know, universal benefit
2: yeah, system. It, you know, it does. You know, it has all sorts of indignities. Yada yada. Then fine. But yeah, it, 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 because it's become such a broad label encompassing so many different things, some of which I'm very dubious about. Indeed, like yeah, you know, the RSA's pilot, which manages to both be really expensive and also a massive cutback in terms of. Uh, people with caregiving responsibilities or uh, acute conditions.
3: Well, someone did point out that we do actually already have a universal basic income in this country. It's called the state pension, right? The idea yeah. is that the state pension pays enough to people who can't can no longer work. And look at the pressures on that in terms of raising the age of, of that, because it is the trouble with it is that it is so so unbelievably expensive to give everybody in the country money.
2: Yeah, but I, yeah, I kind of thought the question was slightly more barred, which was basically, I mean. Is it really people's contention that the, uh, and this is the question, not me, really people's uh, contention that uh, Ed Miliband's agenda plus some nationalizations uh, is really causing people to like turn over the table? Which I mean, I think is both fair and unfair, right? It, it is essentially true that the 2017 manifesto has an awful lot of compromises in it. Uh, one of the things I'm very sympathetic to. Uh, in the various groups of people in the Labour Party who've been talking to me about uh, their ongoing IRA route is lots of people who are symp- sympathetic Corbynites quite rightly point out that the Labour Party has compromised on the 40p rate, it has compromised on Heathrow, which you know does quite literally have the potential to kill us all. It has compromised on how it talks about the police. It has compromised on what Jeremy Corbyn thinks about prostitution. It has compromised on a whole swathe yes, of public policy. Yes, I really didn't policy. see
3: prostitution coming because um, John McDonnell was a big, big supporter of decriminalisation of both sex buyers and, and the mainstream position in the Labour Party, which is that people who sell sex should be decriminalised. So I really thought that was a big... I mean, to the extent that he was a big inviter of the... Um, uh, yeah, English Collective of Prostitutes and people like that to Parliament. Like it was a, for him, it was one of his big domestic policy issues. And that's been... Yeah. And
2: those are those are all tangible, real policy choices that have real consequences on real people in the real world. Whereas whether or not Labour implements IRA in full as a guide, yeah, you know, I mean, ultimately because the NEC is a constitutional court, yeah, you yeah. Know, if there are things you think are vague about it, and you control the NEC majority, I've got great news for you. Right, you know the whole. You thing have is- the
3: haunted expression of a man who's been sent that Stephen Sedley article four billion times.
2: Well, he's also. I'm just so sick of people who believe that uh, the UK is the US title. Title 6 doesn't work the same way as the Equality Act is. Well, the Equality Act's no. got a
3: whole bunch of exemptions about proportionate aims for all kinds yeah, of Yeah, so stuff. I mean, anyway. that's
2: that the thing. It's just like, the, you, you know, they, but in any case, it, it doesn't matter. Now, but I think the flip side of the, you know, of the fact that actually Corbyn's agenda isn't that radical is that the leadership effect works both ways. Why did Jeremy Corbyn excite a lot of people with Milibandism slash Charlie Kennedy's 2005 manifesto plus a great deal of increasing the size of the state? Well, because Corbyn's brand promised radical change. And equally, people who fear Corbynism as some kind of radical change do so not because of the contents of uh, a fairly middle-of-the-road, not even that redistributive 2017 manifesto. They do it because Corbyn, the brand, is something that they find fearful. I think the interesting question question that this question raises is one of the very effective debating tactics than people who support the Corbyn Project do, or well, this thing where it kind of goes, why are you objecting to this? This is normal social democracy. This is being attacked because it's radical, depending on which is more convenient at any given time, which is uh, is what I would do if I was uh, advising them. However,
3: yeah, I think you've called, you previously called it like it's a Mott and bailey strategy. Like yeah. you can look it up. It is a ve- you kind of you, you it like a, a medieval castle which had a kind of outbuilding on it. So when people attack that, you retreat to the to the bailey. Which one? Yeah. Which one's the bailey? And which not one's my the Mott?
2: period. Uh, <laughs> but um, the difficulty is, is I do think that what started out life as a useful uh, debating tactic has, I think, for some people, become a genuine point of confusion. Yeah, I don't mean people outside. I mean, in terms of the actual project itself. Yes, how radical is the project? How radical is the project? How radical does the project want to be? And in many ways, it kind of depends on the, the minister. I mean, there has, as usual, been, I think, probably entirely baseless speculation about a shadow cabinet reshuffle. One of the underperforming posts...
3: Barely read Learn the names of this lot. It,
2: it's not going to happen. He he doesn't like firing people. But one of the continually underperforming posts is the DWP, considered to be underperforming under...
3: Which is Margaret Greenwood. Yep, I only know is. this because I talked to George about it earlier because I was uh, like, who replaced Debbie Abraham? And he told me.
2: Now, I think there are lots of things Debbie Abrams did wrong that she uh, could easily have done right. And I'm not saying that in reference to the allegations against her. However... One of the reasons why it is very difficult for Labour to make headlines on, on the DWP is that if you are the shadow DWP, actually, you have been tasked with living within the confines of funding Britain's future, which is the costings document Labour has. And there is no additional money to reverse the.
3: Which makes me super nostalgic, card. Stephen, because that's exactly what screwed up. Harriet Harman, when she was social security minister in the first Blair government, right, is that they'd been told they had to stick to the story. Tory spending plans for two years. And she writes in a woman's work about the fact that she wished she'd gone back and argued for more money because that's what she got sacked for, for basically, I think it was single mothers, but there was a terrible, you know. Yeah,
2: they cut. they axed uh lone parent benefit yeah. in order to, uh, which was the biggest rebellion of the 1997 two, to 2001 parliament. Ooh. Um yeah, and 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 this is the thing, right? The, but right, uh, scrapping
3: universal credit, which actually the NAO has now said it would cost more money to scrap it than to. I mean, obviously, a failing project, doomed from the start, full of holes that were spotted from the start, but now unfixable without. Well, probably not. It, probably uh, one way or the other, it's probably going to require huge
2: injections of money, right? But the yeah, the weird thing about how radical is it thing is that when you talk to conservative MPs and when they stand up, and go, "Corbyn would destroy our economy." And he actually went. Well, what in the twenty seventeen manifesto do you believe does that? At absolute worst, it would have some fiscally neutral transfers of assets to and from the the public, you know, the public to the private. Right? You really just cannot make make that claim about that manifesto. So, although I think then the kind of the question behind the question, which is like, isn't the assumption here that there's a big radical agenda where it doesn't look like it is fair enough? In an odd way, everyone. His opponents, his supporters, yada yada, most voters believe that Jeremy Corbyn is is more radical than the Labour leader who came before him, which kind of means it's true. From an electoral from a in from a in terms of how political parties and political actors react, it is essentially true. But the reason why I'm not saying I necessarily think Margaret Greenwood is a fantastic politician, but the reason why Margaret Greenwood is failing to make a splash and the reason why if she was sacked, which she won't be, would continue to fail to make a splash is because there is no money and you cannot effectively oppose universal credit uh, if you cannot stand up and go and our plan to fix it is X, Y, Z and that would cost P, Q, R. And because there is no P, Q or R, uh, because Labour has committed at the moment to maintaining the welfare cuts and doesn't really have anything to say about it. They get
3: very grumpy about that if you say that to them. And I think it's a really difficult issue because I said I, I made this point and um, one of the Labour advisors said, well, actually, that's not true. And I said, well, I'm going by what the Resolution Foundation said, but actually what we know is that the campaign themselves said several different things during the 2017 campaign. There was like a kind of Jeremy Corbyn did a like welfare cut hokey-cokey you're like, well, I'm just going to go on what's in the manifesto. I think
2: my my view is, is and, and this is the kind of thing, and I occasionally say depending on the time of night and how warm it is, and because I don't like the heat, I'm getting increasingly cranky. Ultimately, if people want to run on the idea that their manifesto is costed, which I think was very sensible, mm. and it, I think it definitely did uh, get them some votes, then theirs had a public costing document and the conservative one didn't. That means that everyone should take that as a baseline mm. of their spending. And there is no money in funding Britain's Future for an end of the welfare cap. In fact, funding Britain Future assume takes as a baseline the the decisions made on uh, tax and spend by uh, the go- Conservative government. And given that we essentially all know that universal credit is a benefit that in its current form will not work, and to fix it is also is as well as going to cost more money in terms of ending the various cuts that have been built into universal credit. Even if you didn't want to spend more on giving any money to any people in receipt of uh, of Social Security, which I think you should want to do that anyway. But even if you only wanted to fix universal credit, you would still need money that is not in that manifest.
3: Can I have a small rant? Uh, now, you've had a small rant, which is about that story in the uh, about the Department of Health briefing about the fact that women will have to give up work to care for elderly relatives if there is a carer shortage, which again, uh, after Brexit, right? Which is something that also might happen if the minimum wage became high enough that actually those... Care companies that are particularly the ones that are running under council contracts went bust, which they might well do because we see Northamptonshire Council is effectively bust. There's another one I can't remember. I'm no, it's gone. That is teetering on the brink. But you know, the massive, but like forty percent cut in real terms since 2010 for some of these councils, and everyone went, "How can you say don't men have parents too?" And you're like, "Yeah, they do. Unfortunately, they're really not that good at caring for them." One of the things that was annoying about that was and and. and was people sort of piling into it. And you kind of go, well, hang on a minute, where are you when we want to make the case now that the care burden falls disproportionately on women? Like this is just people acknowledging reality. If there is more unpaid labor to be done, then all of our evidence shows this will be disproportionately picked up by women. The Women's Budget Group have done great work on the fact that austerity has meant much more unpaid labor by women, both in terms of childcare and in terms of elderly care. And it makes me cross, Stephen. But I'm writing a book about it. So, Uh, hopefully you'll mention my upcoming book in your free morning email yeah you've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me Helen Lewis and my co-presenter Stephen Bush we're recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra licensed under Creative Commons hey why not subscribe to the New Statesman like all the cool kids are doing subscribe.newstatesman.com
0: There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder,
5: a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs.
0: All seeking to work out. Why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did?
2: The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided.
4: How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it?
2: How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community... Search Disorder
1: wherever you get your podcasts.